Hey friends, have you been blessed or encouraged or challenged by Theology in the Raw? If so, would you consider joining Theology in the Raw's Patreon community? For as little as five bucks a month, you can gain access to a diverse group of Jesus followers who are committed to thinking deeply, loving widely, and having curious conversations with thoughtful people. We have several membership tiers where we where you can receive premium content. For instance, silver level supporters get to ask and vote on the questions for our monthly Patreon only podcast. They also get to see like written drafts of various projects and books I'm working on. And there's other perks for that tier. Gold level supporters get all of this and access to monthly Zoom chats where we basically blow the doors open on any topic they want to discuss. My patrons play a vital role in nurturing the mission of Theology Nara. And for me, just personally, interacting with my Patreon supporters has become one of the hidden blessings in this podcast ministry. So you can check out all of the info at patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. Hey, friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Vincent Lloyd. Uh, Vincent is Associate Professor of Theology and Religious Studies uh, and Director for the Center for Political Theology at Villanova University. He's the author of many books, including uh, Law and Transcendence, The Problem with Grace, Black Natural Law, uh, Religion of the Field Negro in Defense of Charisma, Break Every Yoke, and his most recently released book, Black Dignity, The Struggle Against Domination. All of these books have been published by really high-powered publishers. So um, if, you, if, yeah, if you're not familiar with uh, Vincent's work, he is a top-notch scholar. We uh, talk a lot about race, racial relations, um, anti-racism, and we had a, just a fantastic conversation. I just love talking to Vincent. He's, he just loves to engage in good critical dialogue. So please welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Dr. Vincent Lloyd. Vince, uh, thanks so much for coming on Theology Nara. We've never met, and so this is uh, just us getting to know each other, but I'm really excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking yeah. forward to the conversation. Yeah, it was a mutual friend of ours, another Vincent, who said, hey, you know, my buddy, you might want to have him on your podcast. I think you would enjoy talking to him. So that's that's where this came about. So many thanks to our mutual friend, Vince. Um, why don't you uh, just tell us a little bit about you? How'd you get into academic work? And, and in particular, look like looks like political theology is kind of one of your main overarching areas. We'd love to know how you got into that. Sure. When I was a, a college student, uh, some of my friends and I noticed that the janitors and dining hall workers were not being paid very well, that the student workers were actually being paid more than the professional workers uh, on campus and in some of these jobs. Uh, and we thought, you know, we should do something about that. And, uh, you know, it started an organizing campaign uh, trying to improve the the working conditions and, and wages of the the workers on campus, and through that, uh, I uh, got to engage with religious communities on campus and and off campus. And uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up religious. I, I didn't have uh, parents who had particularly uh, strong religious commitments. But seeing the power of religious communities and visions and feelings to motivate struggles for justice got me intrigued. Uh, both at an intellectual level and a, and a personal level. And uh, ever since then, over the last uh, couple of decades, I've been you know, thinking more about uh, th those uh, ways uh, that um, religious communities can uh, have uh, justice-seeking uh, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, part of their, their core, core set of commitments. Yeah. And are, are you 
I, I don't even know. Are you religious yourself? Are you in, um, I mean, I know you do it. You, you, you're a theologian, so but that doesn't necessarily mean, mean you're a <laughs> Christian. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like many uh, academic uh, people around religion, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about uh, personal uh, stuff, but, you know, I, I, I certainly uh, am not comfortable in a, in a secularist context and okay. uh, am find meaning in uh, the Bible and in the, the figure of Jesus Christ. Okay. Okay. Now you've, within political theology, I'm I'm just looking at your CV. You've, you've written a lot on race. I mean, most of your book, your your recent one, Black Dignity, uh, Break Every Yoke, Religion of the Field Negro, Black Natural Law. I mean, it's a lot of racial related Mm -hmm. books. What got you turned into that part of the conversation? Yeah. So I, I, uh, you know, I had uh, gone to college on the East Coast and then uh, graduate school on the West Coast. And then uh, my first job was in Atlanta, Georgia. (laughs) Uh, and uh, Georgia, you know, is, is uh, different from anywhere I'd, I'd been before uh, in terms of the unavoidability of thinking about about race. I grew up uh, black, but in a multicultural kind of uh, environment where you know, everyone was sort of welcome, uh, you know, uh, welcoming people from uh, different countries, different uh, backgrounds. Uh, and, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of talk about the distinct harms that black folks in America face uh, or uh, the distinct sort of discrimination that uh, that that we face in, in the U.S. In retrospect, uh, you know, I, uh, a lot of that was there. Right. I, I was uh, being targeted at various times because of because of my race. But I, I didn't really have a language to understand that when I moved to Georgia, it was unavoidable. Right. Uh, I uh, had to think about being uh, black in uh, in Georgia uh, and that that again, sort of piqued my academic interest and my personal interest at the same time and, and got me thinking more deeply about uh, about questions of, of race, together with you know, the legacy of the civil rights movement, which is so often presented as only nominally religious, right? That Martin Luther King, yes, he was a reverend, but you know, uh, it was really just a message about love and everyone getting along. It, that, that struck me as, as missing something at the heart of uh, King's uh, vision and animating his you know, how he thought about justice. So I wanted to dig into that, that sort of nexus of religion, theology, race, justice, um, all together there. Can you expand, can you unpack that a little more? Like, so are you saying King's, the assumption that King's vision was just nominally kind of, kind of Christian is, is not going far enough that it was more explicitly Christian or? Yeah. I mean, King had a PhD in theology, right? (laughs) He was, uh, his, uh, ideas about political movements came about from being formed in the black church from being the, the son of a, a, a minister, being uh, someone who had to organize a congregation right? organizing a congregation gave him the skills uh, and experience and vision for organizing a community in, in struggles for, for justice. Uh, and that, uh, you know, that, that really gets erased. If you look at the, the monument to, to King in Washington, DC, you know, they have all these sayings that, that King um, made at, at different times, all these, these sort of uh, famous quotations that, that he said, but there's nothing there about God, nothing there about Jesus, nothing there about the, the depths of his faith. And uh, it's all uh, about sort of uh, basically everyone getting along by loving each other, which really isn't the, um, you know, erases the complexity and depth of Christian love uh, as it's understood in the Christian tradition. That's a, Some people don't understand that. I mean, like you said, he had a P, not only a PhD in theology, but a PhD from Boston College, which is one of the top 
school. This is before he got thrust into the, the civil rights movement. I, I couldn't get into Boston College theology. I mean, he was primarily not just a preacher. Obviously, he's an incredible preacher, but he was he just he wanted to be a theologian, like an actual, like <laughs> you know, high powered academic theologian, which I think his his preaching power sometimes eclipses his theological acumen but um yeah yeah and i mean he was wrestling with the the big issues of the day neo-orthodoxy and christian realism and all all these sorts of uh debates you know what's wrong with uh liberal theology what's wrong with uh sort of forms of more conservative or evangelical ish uh theology uh at the time and you know he was you know he is a sensitive thinker so he he was able to both appreciate the strengths of the the various theological uh, strands around him, particularly those that he was sort of Mm -hmm. uh, encountering at at Boston University among white theologians and Mm -hmm. say, some of this works and some of this doesn't for the context that I'm rooted in, for my church community, for the black church community more generally, and for the the black church community as engaged in justice struggles. Uh, And that, yeah, it seems like that's a, a really important model of being formed in a tradition, but also critically appropriating different theological strands rather than just aligning oneself with one side or another. I'm curious, just on a, because I've been dabbling in political theology. It's not my main area. Where would you find yourself most at home in the kind of different perspectives on political theology? I'm thinking like the kind of Niebuhr approach versus maybe, I don't know, I'm like a Yoder. <laughs> not, he's not, you know, he's more of a biblical studies guy. And I'm sure there's lots of other names and kind of movements. Where would you find yourself? And maybe you can explain what that even means for our audience. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the political theology space is one that's uh, expanded really rapidly in the last, well, uh, two decades and then a uh, decade uh, as well, and means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There are secular philosophers who say that they're doing political theology uh, because they're they're thinking about questions of uh, like the, the sovereignty of a king and how that's related to the sovereignty of God, which, you know, which is an interesting question, but which isn't necessarily taking the complexity of religious ideas that seriously if it's just looking at the sort of mm-hmm. surface level analogies. Wearing a, a more administrative hat, you know, uh, I co-edit this journal of political theology and do uh, help with a, a website, politicaltheology.com, that tries to facilitate these conversations. So wearing that more administrative hat, you know, I try to be pluralistic, try to welcome different voices, and okay. try to expand the conversation. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when I'm speaking in my own uh, in my own voice, you know, I, I'm very uh, suspicious of those both within theological spaces and uh, outside who you know, uh, want to flatten out the content of theology before it goes into politics, right? To say, let's choose three Christian concepts and bring those into 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 the political sphere. Let's say faith, hope, and love, and you know, uh, figure out how how those work out. Um, no, I, I think the and maybe this is leaning toward the Yoder uh, <laughs> direction, but not uh, with, with uh, lots of asterisks uh, there. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, thinking about Christian community, thinking about uh, Christian history, uh, uh, thinking about the force of tradition as something that's inescapable. You know, th- those all seem essential for. Uh, you know, as a prerequisite for political uh, political engagement, that sort of uh, diving into the richness of, of tradition is, um, you know, uh, probably yeah. where I would locate myself. I, I should have also said Oliver O'Donovan. He's he's one of the main, like, is he kind of like one of the main figures? Like, if you're doing political theology, you have to wrestle with O'Donovan. Would that be accurate? Or he seems to be a main fi- player. Yeah. So certainly, there, there's a, a corner of the the space that's that's very uh, invested in uh, wrestling with the ideas of o- O'Donovan. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it, it, it is a, an expansive space. You know, there, there's a whole world around uh, Drew University and Catherine Keller and sort of liberal approaches to uh, political theology that are drawing heavily on uh, political theory and continental philosophy of a more secular stripe and some uh, engaging with Derrida and Foucault and so on. You know, that's another sort of a corner of the world. Uh, there are other sort of Catholic and sort of Anglo-Catholic uh, corners. Uh, O'Donovan is, um, you know, has his own sort of world maybe uh, adjacent to that. So uh, an exciting and, and growing space, but one that can be challenging to navigate because there isn't even a, a really clear definition of what is political theology. Uh, everyone has their own kind of definition. Yeah. 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 I've gotten lost in that literature and I got kind of bored with it <laughs> or just like hundred pages on what is political theology. You know, I'm like, I'm, yeah, it's a, uh, well, that, that's like any discipline though. I mean, that's in biblical studies or theology or, or systematic versus dogmatic. I mean, there's all kinds of different, as you know, once you, once you, once you open up the door of a certain discipline, you get lost in all the methodology conversations. Um, your book, so your most recent book that just came out a few months ago, Black Dignity, the struggle against domination by Yale University Press. No slouch of a publisher. Um, congratulations, first of all. That that's that's. Oh, and your last one before that was with Oxford University Press. So you're not just a scholar. You're like a scholar scholar. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. If people know these are these are incredibly hard. They they only publish a few things a year, and so when they do, they take the top tier. So goodness. Um, t- tell us about Black Dignity, your your most recent book. What's that book all about? What do you trying to argue in that book. Yeah. So one of the things I I noticed was that people talk about Black Lives Matter as if it's a secular movement, as if the civil rights movement 50 years ago was uh, led by religious figures, whether or not it was seriously religious people maybe are are quiet on, but at least led by religious leaders, clerics, you know, wearing a clerical collar in the front of the protest line, whereas um, Black Lives Matter, you know, is uh, youth-led, maybe anti-Christian, that's a standard narrative. But what I was hearing in um, in activist spaces uh, among young black folks, uh, especially young black women, was that you know there's a lot of moral language, a lot of spiritual language that's circulating around around Black Lives Matter, right? uh, language explicitly of spirit, uh, of love, of faith, of uh, struggle, of righteous indignation, language that at least rhymes with, if if doesn't exactly map with. Uh, religious and specifically Christian sorts of ways of of thinking about you know ethical and political life. Uh, so uh, you know I wanted to think more about that. You know, is there a w- way we can tell a story of Black Lives Matter that puts that re- moral, uh, spiritual, religious uh, framework at the center uh, rather than as as a kind of stretch that 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 we might have to to do to bridge uh, religious communities and the Black Lives Matter related activism. Uh, and the the concept that I, I thought would uh, be most helpful to do that was dignity. Uh, hmm. And the the first line of the movement for Black Lives Matter uh, movement for Black Lives platform is an affirmation of human dignity. Uh, and you know I, I uh, heard all around movement spaces a, a commitment to dignity and particularly Black dignity. Uh, does it mean what the UN says when it's affirming dignity? Uh, so dig into that uh, in the context of uh, so Black theology, but uh, also taking seriously the, you know, what you hear on the street, what you hear on social media, uh, from, from activists. Interesting. It, it, I would love your help with this. Cause I've heard somebody explain, you know, even the phrase black lives matter can mean many different things that you have just a bare assertion that black lives matter, which hopefully everybody or 95% of people should agree with. Um, that's, that's not really debated. Then you have 
on the other side, maybe the specific, I don't know if, if you want to call it like an organization, but like the, with the website and the movement and the funding, like that specific maybe organization. Um, and then you have maybe a broader people who, especially in the wake of George Floyd and, and even going back to Michael Brown and others that, that it, it is still a movement, but it's, it, it's, it's, it's far beyond just a specific kind of organization called Black Lives Matter is Am I on the right track there to think about when we talk about Black Lives Matter? It's it's your, there's a spectrum of what that even means, or yeah, yeah, I think that's really uh, helpful the the way you're you're laying that out there that there is a slogan, right? uh, there's a national organization, there are a bunch of local organizations, okay. some of which uh, call themselves Black Lives Matter of you know, such and okay. such city, um, some of which you know call themselves diff- different things, right? Movement for Black Dignity and Power in Los Angeles or something like that, right? That um, but are, are sort of uh, loosely affiliated with each other. Um, but, you know, I, I think what uh, is signaled by all of these different things, right, uh, is a new way of thinking about race uh, in uh, in America, right? That, that uh, whether it's uh, the national movement, whether it's local groups, whether it's, you know, folks who just sort of uh, are showing up at a, a rally and um, feeling called uh, to... Uh, be part of uh, a, a protest. There, there's a recognition that there, there's something specific uh, about anti-blackness, which isn't just another kind of racism, another kind of oppression that we haven't been attending enough in the U.S., uh, particularly over the last you know, 40 or so years, to uh, what makes blackness different and what makes anti-black racism different. That seems really important and. Now, I, I think sometimes there, there's a discussion in the media of, you know, is Black Lives Matter good or bad? And, you know, that works in that sort of abstraction, which doesn't uh, appreciate these complications you're, you're pointing us to. You know, w- when I think of Black Lives Matter, I, I think of folks, uh, you know, black folks uh, and, you know, uh, al- their their friends uh, and allies who you know, have a relative who was pulled over by the police and, and saw something racist with their own eyes, who have a you know, a cousin in jail uh, who's um, black and, you know, whose blackness probably has something to do with them being in jail, why they were uh, were caught and, and in prison rather than someone else, why they were in prison for that length of time rather than someone else. So, you know, I, I really think of it in that sort of personal and, and local sense, right? It's about people who know, who see things around them, who mm-hmm. see the, the people they love being harmed by anti-blackness. Well, you met okay, a couple of questions. Number one, you, you mentioned there's something unique, unique about anti-blackness versus anti other maybe people groups. Can you, can you expand on that more? I mean, I can probably, I think I can guess, but I'd rather have you say what you mean by that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the great, uh, insights of, uh, academic black studies and, uh, these activist movements, black justice movements in the last few years is that slavery seemed as if it ended a long time ago, right? In the 19th century. But that was just the laws that made slavery possible. Mm-hmm. To get a human to treat another human as non-human, right, which mm-hmm. slavery was doing, to get a human to treat another human as an animal, as a machine, you need to change how they think, how they feel. Uh, you need to change uh, institutions. You need to change social norms. You also need to change laws. So once the laws of slavery went away, all that other stuff continued, all of those mm-hmm forms of feeling and reasoning and institutional habits and social norms that were uh, allow making it plausible that black folks were not human right were, were, were should not be uh, treated as as humans are the, this sort of talk about anti-blackness I, I take to be uh, 
uh, an acknowledgement that all that stuff is still with us, right? Uh, whether uh, and we see its effects showing up in the economy, in you know who who gets affect, who who's hurt by in, environmental um, problems, uh, in you know who gets jobs, uh, in you know who the police stop, who's in prison, who who has to struggle uh, for an education for for their children the most. Uh, all, all of this, uh, you know, I think is um, the sort of afterlives of, of slavery, as as uh, it's sometimes put. How would you? Thank you for that. How would you describe? I'm curious because I've read a lot of different perspectives on this from from black thinkers. How would you describe our society, our our progress, lack of progress, and or regress since the civil rights movement with regard to this conversation, specifically the conversations around race as it pertains to the black black people black the black community yeah i think that's a, a tough uh, a tough question because on the surface it, it seems like there's a lot of improvement right you, you don't see a lot of people anymore uh in public saying i'm a racist right i i, I hate black people uh i want them to all go away uh, or you know be subordinate or something it's just not not part of public discourse anymore and you know that's good right it's good that you know there aren't uh people uh, who are being uh, racist uh, in public anymore. That doesn't mean that underlying patterns are uh, improving, right? It's that they're they're taking a a new form. Right? When it when the bad stuff can't happen in public, it's happening in private. It's showing up in in data, right? That's sort of aggregated rather than in the statements that are reported in the newspaper. So, uh, I mean, I think if one looks at things like wealth inequality, if one th- looks at things like segregation of schools. Uh, there hasn't been a, a huge uh, degree of improvement over the last half century, so you know, uh, frustratingly, and yet the, there is something quite different, right? The, because the public discourse has shifted so much. So I, I think that's part of the trickiness of our moment. How do we respond to anti-black racism when it's no longer on the surface like we were used to seeing it uh, a half century ago? What, what's the? I have so many questions. Sorry, <laughs> every time you talk, like, oh man, I want to dive deeper in every. Because I, th- I think it was um, Ibram Kendi who said it's 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 almost worse today because it's more sinister when it's something's buried into the, into the very systems and it's harder for people to see that that's almost a worse situation than before. Even though we can acknowledge, obviously, some some level of progress. Um, but then you know, then I would go read Thomas Sowell and he's got a whole other you know way of of thinking about it. And I, I'm not I don't have the qualifications to agree or disagree with either one. I just read and listen and and learn. Um, wh- what would you say is maybe the cause for, say, the lack of, for on the lack of progress side, fin- you know, uh, the inequalities, the the segregation that still exists, the school system, like, what would you say, um, yeah, is, is, is a reason for that? Yeah. So we, we, we do have these really deeply entrenched, uh, racist habits right, that, that, that don't don't get spoken about uh, and yet manifest in all sorts of places, right? Uh, I guess, uh, you know, I, I'm not great with the medical metaphors, but there's something uh, somewhat, uh, one of these uh, cancers that, that shows up uh, in unexpected places. It starts one place and then, you know, you get rid of that organ, but then in all sorts of other places, you're, you're finding these, these sites of cancer. Just in the last couple of weeks, the New York Times had pieces on uh, anti-Black discrimination uh, against real estate developers, right? Which you think, now, surely in you know th- this sphere uh, where only money matters, you know it would be colorblind. But actually, you know black developers have a really hard time uh, getting bank loans, you know uh, starting new projects. 
same with appraisal, appraisals, housing appraisals, right? The appraisals of Black-owned homes are systematically lower than appraisals of white, uh, white-owned homes and homes owned by folks of other races. Uh, so, you know, we are in this sort of tricky moment where we know that uh, something is happening. And I, I think the most plausible story is that it has to do with the afterlives of slavery. That's what's different about Black, black American communities. Uh, but it's much harder to sort of track, you know, it, was it this particular a uh, developer who refused to work with this other developer that made this thing, uh, you know, that, that that resulted in these statistics where black developers are not doing well. You know, it's harder to track, but we st- still see the effects when we aggregate the data. So we ha- we have to think really subtly about how to how to respond. So in the relationship between uh, in, in, I guess this is kind of across. I don't like conservative liberal, these kind of broad brush category. I think sometimes they're unhelpful and they get really tribalistic. But it seems that, generally speaking, more conservative thinkers put more responsibility on individual decisions, home life, single parent households, whatever. And people typically more on the left would say, "There's no, it's it's yes, of course that might play some role, but it's more importantly, it's 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 structures built into the system. It's not just simply individual decisions. It's like, okay, what are the systems that lead to single parent households? You know, people just wake up one day and say, I want to be a single parent, you know? So on that, am I, am I first of all, am I summarizing kind of the, the discussion slash debate? And I would love for you to help us navigate that briefly. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that uh, there, uh, that hopefully captured some of the dynamics. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I would approach uh, that landscape that you're laying out from a perspective of, you know, a Christian community, right? How, how do how, how do Christians think about, um, you know, what, what matters? You know, uh, community matters, practices matter, uh, histories matter. My intention matters, but my intention is shaped by those who have formed me, those uh, exemplars that I have in my life, those uh, communities that have nurtured me. Uh, so I, I need to be held accountable for my actions, and my and I, we need to think about my intentions. But uh, we also need to think about uh, all of those histories and and uh, facets of community uh, that that are are shaping me, and that we collectively can can do things about. Right? We can uh, change them for the better uh, in order to advance justice. That's helpful. Um... So I do want to jump to this article you wrote because I think somebody listening in might already have kind of maybe put you in a little box, whatever. But this this recent article you wrote, I guess I don't want to say gives a different perspective, but just like is, yeah, it, it gives another side, I guess. Anyway, the article is called "A Black Professor Trapped in Anti-Racist Hell," which you wrote. This is last month, February tenth, it came out. Where in this. Uh, I'm going to let you describe it, but like, well, actually let, let's start here. I would love for you to kind of walk us through just that story. Cause I thought it was, it gives a, yeah, it's, it's really powerful and, get, and gives a different perspective. Um, can you describe what anti-racism is? Because some people hear that and they just think, well, yeah, I'm against racism, but anti-racism has taken on kind of a specific meaning. And so I would love for you to unpack what you mean by anti-racist hell in this article. Thanks. Yeah. So th- th- this has become a sort of a package of beliefs uh, anti-racism has uh, rather than ju- uh, it's not just I don't like racism or I don't do racist things, but through the growth of diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives and through the growth of uh, managers and bureaucrats whose job it is to ensure that workplaces and educational institutions are 
uh, not doing bad things, you know, there's developed a, a quite technical uh, language uh, and set of dogma around uh, what uh, we can and can't say around race uh, and what we can and can't sort of believe, uh, you know, including some uh, quite laudable <laughs> commitments. Like we, we should listen to black women, right? We should, but taking that as a piece of dogma can be un, uh, unhelpful, right? It's something that we have to learn over time and internalize rather than just be of told that we need to repeat as um, in order to be on the right side of history or something like that, with a whole other set of, of beliefs in there as well. This episode is sponsored by Biola University. Biola is consistently ranked as one of the nation's leading Christian universities. It has over 300 academic programs at both the undergraduate and graduate levels, which are available both in Southern California and online. With leading academic programs like business, film, science, and more, uh, Biola's biblically integrated curriculum and spiritual formation also helps students grow closer to God and gain a deeper understanding of scripture. In fact, I was just on the campus of Biola, touring, touring the campus and talking to several deans and professors, and every single person I talked to was so utterly passionate about making Christ first in all things and instilling Christ-like virtues in the hearts and minds of their students. I mean, honestly, I was so impressed with how Christ-centered the entire school is. So at Biola, students become equipped for living a thriving life and career. They'll also learn how to articulate their Christian beliefs. And most of all, they'll be prepared to serve as God's instrument in their communities and around the world. Now, through May 1st, 2023, if you use the promo code Preston, okay, my name, Preston, uh, that will waive the application fee for any Biolet program. Okay, so promo code Preston, waive the fee. Some restrictions might apply. Just visit Biolet.edu for more information. This episode is sponsored by Faithful Counseling. Look, life can be super challenging, filled with ups and downs, times of joy and times of sorrow. And so it's important for us to be spiritually and mentally healthy. Faithful Counseling will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist who's a practicing Christian. This isn't a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. So you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't have to be on camera if you don't want to. Uh, Faithful Counseling is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. We all need to talk to somebody and Faithful Counseling can help. Uh, you can go to the website and read the testimonials. For instance, I read one viewer who said that his counselor is, quote, a great counselor that truly listens. He gives you the space to talk through your emotions and provides concrete solutions and action steps to help you improve your mental health. So visit faithfulcounseling.com forward slash theology and get the professional faith-based counseling that you deserve. Theology Neural listeners will get 10% off your first month by going to faithfulcounseling.com forward slash theology. What was your anti-racist hell? Can you tell that story? And, and take, take as much time as you want. I mean, I, you, it, the way you unpack it is really interesting. Sure. So I, I was teaching this past summer, 2022, in a, in a program for elite high school students. So these are some of the, the best and the brightest of uh, high school students in the U.S. and uh, from uh, abroad uh, who are chosen for um, an all-expenses-paid six-week experience where they take a college-level seminar. In my case, I was teaching at University of Michigan. They also do this at, uh, at Cornell. The, the students uh, all live together in a house. 
the the community of students uh, self governs, so they uh, vote and uh, deliberate on what the rules of their community are going to be. Uh, but the centerpiece of of this experience is this college college level seminar. I was teaching a, a course uh, called uh, Race and the Limits of Law in America. So we were reading uh, Supreme Court cases like Brown versus the Board of Education and Dred Scott, uh, sort of famous uh, Supreme Court cases on, on questions of race, as well as uh, cases on immigration and indigeneity, uh, incarceration, uh, other issues related to sort of race and oppression in the U.S. But the, the, the core of the course was on sort of issues of anti-Black, uh, anti-black racism. We we're also reading some literature, some cultural analysis, and and some other uh, other texts as well. And at first, it uh, seemed as if this would be just a, a regular college seminar, albeit with you know, students who are a bit awkward, right? They're, they're sixteen or seventeen. They're uh, away from their families, some sometimes for the first time, and you know, in this quite intense experience, right, uh, trying to figure out how to how to live together. Very quickly, it, uh, I, I came to realize that something something strange was was going on. You know, the, the students were not just uh, sort of generally curious about the things we were reading. The, the, this program that, that uh, runs the seminar, the Telluride Association, had started um, having the students spend their afternoons. I, I would uh, be co-teaching the seminar in the morning. In the afternoons, the students would be taking anti-racism workshops, which were structured, it seemed, in a quite dogmatic way. They were sort of, uh, lectured at to say, these are the things that you need to believe to be a good anti-racist. Uh, and given all, all the sort of information uh, and and told that uh, you are a bad person, right? If you say things that deviate from this orthodoxy to the point where students were um, sort of breaking down emotionally and 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 in some cases near uh, mentally uh, because they were being accused of of being racist um, in, in these workshops. So that atmosphere was happening in the afternoon. That started to enter into the seminar. When we were spending a week talking about Native American genocide and, and dispossession, students said, why aren't we talking about anti-Blackness? Uh, they'd been hearing in these anti, anti-racism workshops that everything needs to be about anti-Blackness. And um, so they were frustrated that we uh, were talking about another issue uh, in, in my seminar. We were trying to do a mock court um, exercise where some of the students are on a lawyer for uh, are on a team of lawyers for one side. Uh, of a case, another group of students are on a team of lawyers for another side, but the the students said, you know, we, we don't, we think it's uh, harming uh, harming us to argue for a side that we don't believe in, uh, that uh, for a side that's unjust in, in our view, based on these sort of beliefs that they were being told in these uh, anti-racism workshops. So it became very very hard uh, to to conduct a regular seminar where you're exchanging ideas, you're you might be frustrated, but that, that's part of the thing, right? You, you get frustrated and then you think more about it. You try out other ideas. Other people, um, you know, uh, inflect the comments and thoughts that you have in, in new ways. And you're sort of working together to, to figure things out. As, as to make a long story short, the, the thing degenerated. Uh, two of the students were kicked out of the, the program uh, by some sort of discussion or vote of the, the, the students who were living together. These were the two students who had heterodox views, who were never, they were Asian American students who just didn't uh, buy the anti-racism dogma that they were being um, being told in these workshops. And then eventually the students uh, mutinied against, against me and said, uh, unless you will uh, only teach us about anti-Blackness and only do it in the way that is defending orthodoxy and calling out heterodoxy, uh, calling out heresy uh, to this anti-racism uh, dogma, 
we will be harmed, right? Uh, this class, this class will not succeed, um, and the the class uh, collapsed. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can you um, when you say the orthodoxy and the dogma that they were being taught, can can you unpack some of those ideas that they were told that you're not allowed to think through question? Just you have this is two plus two equals four. Kind of like you have to believe it. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, among these views were uh, views around the authority of experience. Uh, if someone is a black woman, uh, then uh, when we're talking about issues related to, to black women, uh, we need to defer to uh, them. Uh, absolutely. Right? That whatever they say stops the conversation uh, because they, they have um, knowledge that no one else uh, could have. Uh, about uh, about the issue, uh, so that, that's one uh, sort of example. Race trumps everything else, uh, and that uh, blackness trumps everything, uh, every other sort of question of race, uh, and not not uh, in a way that means we can learn from blackness uh, how to think about multiple questions of race. But you know, once uh, you know, if we're talking about discrimination against Asian Americans, we're necessarily missing important conversation about anti-blackness uh, that was another sort of component of this kind of uh, dogma that was that was being conveyed. Where does, that, where does this dogma come from? Like, are there, um, I, I, it doesn't, again, in re, it's been a while since I read Kendi. It doesn't, I mean, he wrote, you know, how to be an anti-racist. So, I mean, any anti-racist conversations is, are going to include him. Is it his, is it partly his work? Is it deeper than that? Is it a certain? No, it's a, a good question. And, and I think it is a little bit uh, amorphous. So th- there is a sort of a, uh, White fragility, um, uh, Ibram Kendi stuff, right? That that's circulating, but you know, I, I think what's happening uh, post twenty twenty and, and even before that, uh, corporations and organizations were realizing that they they need to say more about questions of race, uh, which is probably right, right? They they should think in more careful ways about questions of race, but then they want to do that in the the cheapest, most efficient way, right? The fastest way, so they sort of distill uh, some ideas that are uh, the most palatable or um, to their organizational cultures uh, from uh, folks like Kendi, uh, folks like Robin D'Angelo, the author of White Fragility, and, and a few others, prepackage that into morsels that can, you know, you can convey in a, in a workshop to a, a, at a corporate retreat or, you know, at, at a university orientation meeting or uh, w- whatever it is. Um, and, and I think that's, that's bred its own sort of culture, uh, as that's happened more and more. Okay. Yeah. That's, I, I remember, re- yeah, I read D'Angelo's book a while back. Well, I mean, we're kind of right when it came out. I mean, gosh, that was like the talk of the, for a couple of years or a year or so that was like, everybody's talking about it. And I read Kendi, I read, you know, other, other people. Um, I listened to a lot of like, a uh, Col- Coleman Hughes, Glenn Lowry to get kind of another perspective and, and, um, Oh, who's a linguist? Um, John McWhorter. Yeah. yeah. John McWhorter. Thomas Sowell and others. So I mean, a wide range. I thought of all that, I've appreciated a lot of what everybody's saying. Um, I thought D'Angelo's book was could have used some more editorial attention. I, I didn't think it was argued or re- I thought. It was, I mean, yeah, I thought it was kind of a terrible book, honestly. <laughs> yeah. and, and again, maybe she's right. I don't know. I just thought the bar book itself. I'm just all these leaps and just some. I don't know. It was just it was a bizarre, bizarre book for me to read. But again, maybe that's me, not you know. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a sort of industry, uh, and then on top of that is all the social media um, uh, dynamics, right? Where people want to uh, retweet the thing that is correct, right? And want to yeah. be, you know, uh, liking the charismatic figure who is 
saying truths about racism that that uh, resonate with them, uh, which you know that that sort of culture, that dynamic doesn't give itself to uh, uh, complex discussion or you know uh, understanding multiple sides of an uh, of an argument or sort of digging digging deeper. You, you've used a phrase, and I, I saw you kind of give a little bit of an eye roll on, on people being harmed. Um, I'm curious, can you unpack, can, can can ideas be harmful? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you think that, the or you, what, do you th- what do you think about the claim that being exposed to alternative ideas um, are harmful and that, you know, maybe even trigger warnings, right? You know, I, I, I was... I'm, I'm for, you know, I'm, I'm being told by you, you know, to argue the different side just for the sake of an educational experience. And that very process is harmful. Can, can you expand on that? Um, sure. And I think this is an, another uh, site where Christian communities have a, have a lot to offer, right? That there's an appreciation that as humans, we, we harm others. We all harm others. We all are harmed by others. Uh, and that, that's something that we need to take seriously and reflect on. Um, but it also doesn't mean uh, everything has to stop as soon as there, there's a, a sense of discomfort. Right? Uh, when there are uh, grave harms, we need to figure out how how to make things right, how how to uh, reweave the fabric of our of our community and of ourselves once those grave grave harms uh, occur. Uh, but th- this language of of harm, uh, which you know, started off with with good intention, right? That that it's supposed to be an alternative to policing. That's about laws and violating laws and getting punishments. Uh, and instead, we'll talk about harms and uh, making right those harms. You now, th- this language of uh, of harms has uh, turned into, yeah, I, I think often a, a conversation stopper where people say, uh, "I'm uncomfortable," therefore, you know, I interpret that as being harmed. Therefore, you know, we need to stop what's happening right now. And you need to apologize for the harm that you committed knowingly or, or unknowingly. That, that strikes me as, as unuseful and unfruitful for the kind of conversation that we ought to have if we want to explore questions of justice and mm-hmm. goodness and truth. I do find, I mean, I, I travel quite a bit to different countries. I've been to many majority world countries, have friends in majority world countries, and they just don't talk, like it's not, this does seem to be kind of a first world conversation where ideas are described as being harmful. At the same time, I'm, I'm a fellow academic and I know that, yeah, some of the worst massacres of humanity began with a really bad idea, you know, like I think the rise of Nazi fascism was a really bad idea at the beginning. Um, so I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm living in this balance of recognizing that, no, I mean, I, I think evil from humanity it arises from bad ideas and it's, it, is, it is fueled by bad ideas on the other side, this this idea that being exposed to something you disagree with, or even maybe something you see as, I think that's unjust, or like you were saying, like, and I would love for you to expand on this if if you want. I I'll let you do it. I'm not going to do, it, but like, you know, say, saying if you're a, a black woman, then you're then you basically have. It's, I hear, I'm hearing you say like, whatever you say kind of needs to be accepted. Like, there's no kind of pushback to that. Which to me, that feels a little. That's in a roundabout way is almost dehumanizing. Like you're almost stripping someone of agency when you say, "No, I can't push back to anything this person's saying because of their experience, or whatever." Like that doesn't seem. I, I don't. I wouldn't feel humanized if I said something. And everybody was like, "Okay." I'm like, "Well, no, no." Like I'm human too. I, I have mistakes. Like you know, push back. Help me. Help me to improve. Like I, I would feel dishonored if somebody didn't just simply believe everything I said. I don't know where I'm going with that. So, so um, 
Yeah. Can you, I don't know. I, I would love for you to help us think through legitimate ideas that do cause harm ultimately and other maybe the claim that certain ideas cause harm that that maybe are are actually not helpful how do we distinguish between those two sure yeah and i don't i, I don't i don't find the harm language uh that useful myself i think there are other languages that, that have a more sophisticated uh that, that uh bring about a more sophisticated analysis so i, I think the language of domination is really useful because it refers back to something that we can all think of very clearly, right? A master and a slave, right? One person who can arbitrarily assert their will over another. Right? Uh, we see that in laboratory conditions in uh, you know, the Middle Passage, right? Slaves being brought uh, to uh, the, 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 uh, the Americas. And you know, domination, yes, involves harms, but the thing that is the problem is the uh, mastery, right? Uh, human setting themselves up as a god, right, in this, in this role uh, as, uh, as a master over, over the enslaved. Uh, looking for that kind of dynamic uh, strikes me as, uh, you know, much more useful than, than thinking about harm. Now, on this question of the, what people sometimes call it epistemic privilege, like listening, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, taking the authority of those who have particular experiences or, um, you know, are, are marginalized, on the one hand, you know, that sounds right. And it also sounds uh, like a lot of things in religious and particularly Christian traditions, right? That, you know, uh, Jesus is with those who are the, who are the most marginalized, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Jesus is with the poor yeah, and the, yeah. the weak, you know, uh, and that means that there's particular knowledge of the good, the true, and the beautiful to be found in those spaces uh, and among those, among those people. Uh, that's, that seems right. Uh, on the other hand, that it doesn't mean that we should just uh, stop talking and revere uh, those who have suffered, right? It means that, you know, that should open a conversation. You know, wh what what can those who have experienced suffering or marginalization or oppression or domination, how can they contribute to uh, a, a conversation that, that we're having that, that maybe wasn't attuned enough to their voices mm -hmm. um, or, or to our own experiences of suffering and domination that we sometimes repress when we come into, uh, into uh, discussions about um, you know intellectual or, or political life. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, so using those those experiences, taking them seriously, uh, treating them with with a, a deep respect, but you know using them to, to open conversations seems mm -hmm. really important to me. I've just seen them. Maybe it's in social media. I don't know. Like the kind of harm pushback is, at least in some cases, maybe many cases, it does seem to be almost. It can be. I don't know, a lazy way to not interact with somebody's ideas too. Like if it just seems to shut things down. Like if I say, Hey, here's what I think. And they'll, that's, and they'd say that's harmful. Like they don't even have to deal with the content of what I said. You just accuse it of being a harmful idea, which is really, I don't know. I, I again, I, and I want to take seriously the potential of ideas harming. I, I want to emphasize that again, but I feel like in some cases it can be just a, yeah, a cop out, a way of kind of like siloing yourself off from, people that disagree with you or, 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 you know, uh, cause nobody, and I feel like there is an extra sensitivity, at least among a certain population to be causing harm. Like I don't want to cause harm, you know, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I don't know how to point that out, but yeah. And it, I mean, it, it strikes me that, that, you know, that, that's the kind of discourse that, that can run wild on social media because it, it's at a level of abstraction, right. And, and at a level of distance from real life and real relationships, right. Hmm. When you're dealing with your, your neighbor, or dealing with a concrete problem, right? Like there's water leaking on the the street across <laughs> across the way, you need to fix it, right? Uh, you know, we have to deal with all sorts of people who have all sorts of quirks, 
who are saying all sorts of things, uh, you know, some of which are, you know, more on planet Earth than, than others, right? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, you deal with it uh, because you want to you address a problem. And uh, I think that, that sort of localness and concreteness uh, is the best antidote to some of this sort of free-floating social media media language that, that we get. Yeah, you mentioned early on a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, initiatives and seminars. This is these are pretty widespread, right? In 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 various companies, do you find? I mean, are they? Your example, it seemed to be kind of like ah, I think these aren't either too helpful. Would that? Would you say these aren't really accomplishing what they're trying to accomplish, or do you? Is there enough of diversity in how they go about them that it's hard to say all of them are this or that? You know? Yeah, and I think this is a particularly tricky issue in that um, there are all sorts of aspects of life in the U.S. and beyond that. Uh, have been insensitive to questions of diversity uh, and and inclusion yeah. on lots of not only on race but on gender on all sorts of other issues uh, where you know those who are uh, you know on class those who are coming uh, from you know I, I, I went to college on the east coast but I, I came from a small town in Minnesota you know uh, I, I, there were a lot of cultural things that, I, I, that around the east coast that made me feel excluded there were all sorts of students who came from private schools uh, with lots of money. And, you know, I, I didn't know how to talk to them or how to you know what their, what their lives were like. There are all sorts of issue, real issues of uh, inclusion and diversity that, that we need to address, creating layers of management, cre- creating sort of uh, prepackaged uh, solutions that are really just convenient for corporations or, or convenient for those corporations to check off a box. You know, that, that doesn't seem like the right way to, to do that. And, you know, it, it also seems like a problem when they're presented as salvific, right? If if we do this diversity training, then the problem will be solved. Then we will be uh, honoring the memory of George Floyd, or or you know whatever the the sort of framing framing is. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me that you know these need to be ongoing conversations that go deeper and deeper and deeper, uh, and that interrogate you know what is the the mission of an organization. You know, how can we strengthen that mission as we're thinking about questions of diversity? Universities have you know missions that involve you know, intellectual inquiry to um, to do diversity work in a university means to do intellectual work better, right? In, in ways, right. do that intellectual work in ways that are taking account of questions of diversity uh, rather than adding on a layer of staff people who are trying to sort of create a buffer against protest um, in mm-hmm. in um, in the name of diversity rhetoric. What would be what would be some key ingredients for a healthy? diversity inclusion seminar that, that maybe isn't happening as much like if you if you were to lead one <laughs> what, what what are some what's the culture you would establish in that kind of an, a setting yes yeah so I, I do think there, there's a difference between a seminar and a workshop so a, a workshop tries to convey information uh, in a uh, about a particular topic in a sort of finite time and thinks you know you'll uh, you'll leave this workshop with the set of tools that I've given you workshops can be useful for various things, right? You can get skills, you know, that, that's useful. I'm not sure if they're the most useful on these questions of diversity and inclusion. You know, the, the seminar, in contrast, at least as as it's engaged in a, in a university setting, but also, I think, in reading groups that, that folks have and, you know, other sorts of formations in the in the world uh, outside of the university involves a, an ongoing conversation that's, that's always getting deeper, that's always uh, you know, asking questions that might be occasioned by a particular reading or a text, but that, you know, goes from there into what does each person from their own perspective, you know, what questions are they asking? How, how can they complicate what someone else is saying? How can we, with a sort of um, 
common set of interests and purposes of, of pursuing justice or, or making better, uh, more faithful our, our organization? You know, how, how can we pursue um, the, these questions um, occasioned by this, this material without a preordained end, right? Not knowing yeah. what, what, what it's going to look like at, at, the, at, at the end of the day. Oh, that's that's helpful. No, that's really helpful. I'm curious. Um, what? So your your book came out uh, just last uh, well, a few months ago, November, I believe. Are you working on something else? Right? I, I, books come out typically like a year after you actually finish a manuscript. So it's been a while since you've been writing it. Are you working on something else right now? And what that might? Yeah, be? yeah. It was 2020 that I, I finished that manuscript. So it's been <laughs> sitting around. The, the supply chain shortages have been bad for bad for publishing there. Yeah, I'm working on a new project about abuse. Uh, it seems like abuse is a language we use really loosely now. Uh, it's almost used interchangeably with trauma, violence, harm. Um, but it strikes me that there's something very particular about what abuse is that you know involves privacy, involves relationship, involves skewing morality. Uh, and uh, you know, even though we use abuse in quite different domains, from substance abuse to child abuse to clergy, you know, clergy abuse mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, forms of political abuse, these all might have something in common. Uh, and I, I want to think together about, you know, what, what um, you know, what this thing that we call abuse really is mm. uh, and how we can respond better to it. How, what, what, what gave rise to that topic? Yeah, so some of it was uh, thinking about what we were talking about earlier in terms of the okay. post, uh, changes in race in the U.S. post-civil rights. That you know you can't be a racist in in public, but you also can't be a bully in public anymore, right? Since the 1960s, right? It's just not cool to be a a, a bully. Maybe the last few years have seen some slight changes around that, but you know, uh, in general, uh, so public discourse has changed, uh, and yet we're still harming each other a lot, right? We're still, uh, you know, there's all sorts of meanness and uh, forms of domination and, and you know uh, forms of violence uh, in in our culture. Uh, but it's gone below ground. It's gone into this sort of private realm, in this relational realm, and in a realm that's, uh, I think, skewing morality and and, and truth uh, in ways that are are quite distinctive, uh, and and that go by the name of abuse. So that, that that's part of the motivation. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, one more, one more question. Sorry to kind of dance around here at the end, but um, responses to your article that that you wrote a month ago. What what's been the feedback? Like yeah, so uh, people do have strong uh, opinions about this <laughs> from lots of directions. Uh, so I mean, one direction uh, is uh, from conservatives saying, "You know, this is what we told you all along." Now the now the liberals are figuring out that the anti-racism stuff is bad, which you no, know, really isn't my point. Right? That we need to yeah. just, you know, <laughs> we're at a, a moment where we're experimenting with. Um, how to confront anti-blackness, and some experiments work. Some don't. We need to be self-critical about that. You know, some responses, uh, you know, were uh, uh, sort of frustrated with the way that I uh, characterized the students, or thought that uh, you know I should uh, have respected the intentions of the students more um, in in the seminar in in the way I was writing. Which is probably true, right? We we ultimately agree <laughs> that you know there's bad stuff happening in the world, and we want to pursue justice, right? It was just a question yeah. of you know, how how to do that that better. Uh, and uh, I think it, it is important in writing, and I, I want to do this more in the future to uh, be sure to make alliances, right? Be sure to welcome others in mm -hmm. uh, in our in our writing and our public engagements, and say, yeah, we all want to pursue justice. We all want to make the the world a, a better place. To, to we all want to find truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, and you know, we just need to to talk together, to figure out together 
the, the most effective ways to do that. And that's going to be frustrating, but you know, it, it's a project that we need to engage in co- collaboratively. Well, Vincent, thanks so much for your time on Theology and Raw. Where, where can people find you and your work if they want to check out more? You know, I, I don't do social media, but uh, I guess I'm on the Villanova Villanova University website and, and the, the book is available from uh, Yale University Press. Well, many blessings to you and your work. And uh, yeah, thanks for the really fascinating conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.